My name's Eric, I'm one of the pastors here. We are gonna, um, we are gonna step into a text this morning that uh, is, is really challenging. And, and what, I, what, I, what I think can happen when, when, when we read challenging texts, one of the things that can be most helpful for us is, is to treat them as if, it's, as, as if it actually is God's word and, and place ourselves underneath it because it is God's word and he is all wise and all knowing and, um, and we do well to submit to his word today. So this is Deuteronomy chapter four. If you have your Bibles open, if not, go ahead and, and read from the screen um, with me this morning. This is our text. I invite you to turn and to listen to this. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, that I should not enter the good land, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This is the word of the Lord. And you can be seated today. Peter Kreeft once said that the opposite of Christianity is not atheism, but idolatry. And the truth is, is that idolatry comes to us in many different forms. And to illustrate, I'd like to talk to you about eighth grade football for just a moment. <laughs> the eldest of my offspring, whom I'm quite proud of. This is a few weeks back, this is a real moment. Some of you witnessed it. Uh, 
few weeks back, it's the fourth quarter of a game, a pivotal game, and I'm sitting next to two people that I love, my wife, Anne Marie, and Pastor Derek. And uh, one of them was very tuned in to my, let's call it agitation, for three and a half quarters of the game. And we're sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like mumbling a lot. I don't know why I was just mumbling. And, I was like, and, and my wife looked at me multiple times throughout the game, and she made this motion. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that doesn't have to be your spouse. Anybody who loves you and sees you in a not great moment, if they love you, they'll go like this. And that wasn't working. And so, so finally, after three and a half quarters of, uh, of that, it was, just, it was just getting worse and worse and worse. But then this moment happened, okay? This moment happened, it was, we're, again, we're, we're just within a few minutes left of the game, and uh, my son, my eldest son, Judah, lines up in the exposition. He's a wide receiver, if you know, you know. And there was this moment where like, I saw him go out wide, and I was like, this is about to happen right now. This is about to happen right now. We're down one score. Um, the ball gets hiked to Graham. Graham's QB1, we love Graham. And Graham gets the ball, three-step drop, and then, and, and Judah runs like one of the most phenomenal routes a 13-year-old could ever run. And, and Graham literally throws him open. I have a video of this, I've texted it to dozens of you. And, and literally throws him open, Judah turns the ball, just, he just catches the ball, tie game. The crowd goes wild, I go wild. But that's not really what I came here to tell you. I wanna talk to you about, about that whole three and a half quarters where I just sat in intense agitation Mumbling, and my wife continues to do that 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 move. Like, just, just. And and what happened? At the the climax of that moment was when she turned to me and quoted the great poet and philosopher of our time, Taylor Swift. She said, "You need to calm down. <laughs> you need to calm down." The late Tim Keller said that idolatry happens when good things become ultimate things, and isn't that true? So I tell you that story because the truth is is that cultural and historical snobbery has us turn up our noses at Bible passages that talk about the carving of images or the worshiping of the sun, the moon, and the stars, all these different ancient practices of the the ancient Near East, all while we worship youth sports, home decor, other people's vacations, all while doom scrolling for hours and hours on end. What would the ancients think of our forms of worship? Here's a better question that we'll explore today, is what does God think about our idolatry? And you may not be building a golden calf in your garage, but it is entirely possible that there are some good things in your life that have become ultimate things. And so for the next 30 minutes or so, what I want to do is I want to invite you to consider one thing in your life, perhaps a good thing, that has become an ultimate thing. And I want to invite you this morning to just sort of hold that loosely and let the triune God, the creator God, just begin to talk to you about that for the next half hour or so. How does God feel about our idols? What does God think of that? 
So today we'll walk through this text and we'll ask the spirit that inspired it to speak to us. Now, one of the things that they teach you about preaching is that the tone of the sermon should match the tone of the text. And so I'm sorry. (laughs) And I'll just say that. The truth is, is this is a warning text. It's a sobering text. And so here's what we're gonna see today about idolatry. We're gonna see four warnings, one promise, into practice. It's what God is going to show us today. So let's just get right into it. The first warning that comes to us from this text is this. There's no such thing as not worshiping. I said that right. There's no such thing is not worshiping. Now the opening words of our text, they're, they're consistent with what Moses has been talking about to these people that are at the boundary. They are about to step into the promises of God, the blessing of God, and Moses is in continuing to instruct them with these words that come to us in verse 15. He says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. The Hebrew literally reads, pay very close attention to your souls. Pay very close attention to your souls. Because they're stepping into a land where the question is not, do you believe in God? This is a land full, not full of secularism or atheism. This is a land full of polytheism. The question is not, do you believe in God? The question is, is which gods are you worshiping today? Which gods in this moment will you call upon for this need? And what Moses knew was that the worship of other gods would be one of the primary temptations that they experienced stepping into all that God has for them would be to adapt into the culture and the worship practices of that time and place. And I think that that is still the case in our time right now. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna drop a lengthy quote on you. And it's because I believe in you. I believe that you can handle this and that this is worth it. This comes from David Foster Wallace, who was a prolific writer who died around, tragically died around 15 years ago. This man was not a Christian, so this is what I'm about to read is not the gospel. But I am compelled, and I think you might be as well, by his sort of understanding of the human ache and need to worship. And so here's what, it, here's what he said to, this was an actually, I'm gonna read you an excerpt from a graduation speech. This is either the greatest or worst graduation speech of all time. And uh, you can decide. He says this to a group of people about to step out into their careers and into the world. He said this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. 
They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the, wor- and the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny, school-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. You're welcome for that. So clearly he's he's not reflecting sort of a Christian perspective, but isn't he after something that's true? There isn't any such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. But the choice we get is what or who we worship. And the truth is, is if we don't play, pay close attention, or as, this, as Moses says, if unless we pay very close attention to our souls, we will just simply slip into the default settings of our time. What are those? How about the need to be noticed? the need to be attractive, the need to be powerful, the need to appear to have it all together, the need to appear to be intelligent, the need to weigh in on every issue, the need to respond to every crisis, the need to be right, or the need to fill in the blank. The truth is, is you will worship something. There's no such thing as not worshiping. This is why one of the greatest theologians in the Christian faith once said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And so this passage is just a, a lengthy warning in and of itself. And the first warning to us is that, is that we need to actually start to pay attention to ourselves, to our souls, because we're always worshiping something. And that will bring us kind of deeper into this text today. First warning is there's no such thing as not worshiping. But the second warning, and this comes directly from the text, is this. It is the tendency to worship creation over the creator. I want to invite you this morning to turn and to look into this text, particularly into verses 16 and 19. And if you look there, here's what's happening in this text. God has revealed himself to his people but not his form, he has spoken to them through his voice. He's revealed his plans for them, his blessing over their life. It's through the power of his voice. But the temptation was to sort of turn that into something visible that they could see. And so what happens in our text, we just read this, but the temptation was to do this, that would be to make uh, carved images out of, and he starts with this, the likeness of a male or female, or the likeness of animals on the earth, or the likeness of winged birds, the likeness of things that creep on the ground, or the fish in the sea. And then he goes on to talk about bowing down in worship to the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens. These are the things that God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Now what's going on there, if you pay close attention, this is sort of the the genius of of Hebrew poetry is what, what I just described going from male to female to animals to the birds and all on all the way up to the heavens is this is an inversion of the created order. 
And that is precisely what idolatry is. True worship of God actually begins with God. In Genesis 1, the story of creation begins with God Almighty creating the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on and on in the direct opposite of the text that we just made. We start with God who made the heavens and the earth and the fish of the sea, things that creep on the ground, birds, animals, and then creation sort of apexes when God creates human beings in his own image. But idolatry doesn't start with God. It starts with us. Are you with me? And that is, that is the tricky thing about it. Is that rather than looking to God, we would look to ourselves. Rather than looking to the creator, we would look to his creation for worship. John Calvin said this, what is idolatry if not this? To worship the gifts in place of the giver himself. And the gifts of God's creation are profound. It brings so much energy to, to our lives is the, the gifts that he gives, but it's so easy to worship them instead of God himself. Two of the greatest gifts in creation are relationships and work. Think about that. Really, the high point of creation is when God makes man, but then when he brings male and female um, together in relationship. I'm telling you, one of the greatest temptations in my life is to turn my marriage into an idol. It's a good thing, it's a very good thing, but it is not the ultimate thing. And one of the things Anne-Marie and I have noticed at various seasons in our life is, is we're sort of trying to get our meaning out of this relationship rather than from the one who has blessed us with it. And that actually causes greater friction, greater sort of turmoil when we turn into each other rather than turning first to God. Work, again, is one of the great gifts of creation. Part of the creation mandate that God gives people is to work, and to work in such a way that magnifies the glories of God. But isn't work one of the easiest ways that we worship ourselves, or that we worship accomplishment, or that we forsake being a human being with becoming a human doing? These are the kinds of default settings of our time. Is where we take the gift and we put it up and above the giver. Those are some of the things that I struggle with, maybe some of the things that you struggle with, but what, what, what Moses is getting at is he's actually getting into the particular idols of the moment. And, and I think in many ways he's getting into the idolatry that Israel witnessed for 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And he's also looking ahead to the kinds of idols that they will be tempted to worship in the land that they are, take, they are being brought into. And he's like, you need to pay attention. You need to pay attention to your souls and you need to be paying attention that you don't lift up creation over the creator. And that brings us to the third warning of this text, which I think is the most sobering warning of this text, and it is this. God will not share us with our idols. He will not share us. This is really the why behind this whole text. I want you to look here first at verse 20, and then I'm gonna skip down to verse 23, but let me, in 24, but let me read this to you. Here's the why. 
He says, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Now skip down to verse 23. He says, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. And then he says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. I'm gonna sum up this text with a phrase that will probably offend you, but this is what it's saying. You and God are not in an open relationship. If that offends you, I assure you, that is the message that he's trying to get across. I'm not trying to be crass, but that is the nature of the way God describes his relationship with his people. He describes himself as a lover, as a husband, and he will not share his own with anyone else. And so right in the middle of this passage, what's happening in verse 20 is that we get Israel's gospel, the gospel of God, the reality that Israel has been taken out of slavery as they are to this day. He says, I rescued you out of 400 years of bondage, of backbreaking work, of no inheritance, of no future, of no hope. He says, I pulled you out with a mighty hand and rescued you from Egypt and all its gods. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is a foretaste of the redemption of all mankind through the one man, Jesus Christ. But the tendency back then and the tendency right now, our propensity is to trade the redeeming eternal God for the gods of our moment and our culture. The opposite of Christianity is idolatry. So how does God feel about idolatry? White hot anger, wrath, fury and even rage. He is all loving and all good, kind, generous, but when it comes to his glory and his people, he is not chill, not even a little bit. In verse 20, you probably notice that Egypt is described as, as a furnace. They're described as an iron furnace. The key thing that's happening in a furnace is of course, Fire. And then in verse 24, how does God describe himself? He says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He will save your life. He will pull you out of the pit. He will redeem your life. He will pour out his love, affection, and blessing on your life. But the thing that he won't do is share you with anything or anyone else. That word jealousy for us is sort of triggering, isn't it? And the reason is, is because we, we can only think of jealousy as a negative thing, right? Jealousy is a word that we think of when we think of perhaps an abusive parent or a relationship or sort of dysfunctional friendship. We would use the word jealous to describe something that's going wrong. But God describes himself as a jealous God. And lest we think this is simply kind of like an adjective about him, I need to show you one other thing. This is Bible nerding out for a second. In Exodus 34, you don't have to turn there, 
Moses is talking to the people about what they might expect when they step into the land, that there will be many other gods, and he's like, tear down the altars. And then this little parenthetical phrase could easily slip by, but it ought not. It says this, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. It's not just something he feels, it's something he is. And that's actually really good for your life. Throughout the, the Old and the New Testament, God is described like a spouse who has a relentless protective instinct over the one that he loves. Could, he act, could we actually say that he's loving if he was just like, you just kind of do whatever, go wherever, be with whoever. Is that loving? That is in no way loving. And so God is a jealous God and would even go so far to name himself as that. He is in fact a consuming fire with zeal for his people and his glory. He wants your attention. He wants your allegiance. He wants your worship. Why? Because anything else will eat you alive. Anything else will absolutely eat you alive and enslave you. And so he warns us, give your worship to me. I'm jealous for it. And believe it or not, there's actually a fourth warning. So we just keep turning up the heat here this morning, but the fourth warning about idolatry that comes to us in this text is this. It's that worship is an inheritance. Worship is an inheritance. Moses begins to look prophetically towards the future of Israel in these next few verses. I wanna read them to you. He says, when, in verse 25, he says, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it but will be utterly destroyed and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. What is he saying? He's saying worship is an inheritance that one generation passes on to the next. We saw this last week in our text in verse nine. Verse nine of, of chapter four says, only take care and keep your soul diligently. It's the same phrase in Hebrew as the one that starts our passage. Lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And here's the instruction, make them known to your children and your children's children. Now, what he's saying is that your children, the next generation, they are going to inherit the practices of your worship. If you worship me, the one God, then they will inherit that practice. But if you worship idols, they'll inherit that. And then he tells them what the result of that is generations in the future. It's exile. 
This is Israel's story. This is the tragedy of Israel's story. And even here in the beginning of the Bible, we are seeing that this sort of spirit-inspired text looks ahead to the reality that Israel will give in to other gods. And that will bring on what is called the Babylonian exile, where God will literally give them over to their idols. He says, you'll have your fill of idols in the refining place that the exile actually is. And so the warning is to pass on, to deposit the reality of the redeeming power, the story of God, he says, pass that on from generation to generation or, or exile. Now, we've had a lot of warnings today, so let's talk about opportunity today. Because if there's a warning there, then isn't there also an opportunity? I said this at the 9 a.m., but I'll say it to you as well. Every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., in this section right here, it is full of high school students full of high school students who have come to watch and witness our worship practices. They are getting an inheritance from us. And the question is, is that inheritance a group of people sort of sipping coffee and humming along, trying to look like respectable people? Or is it a group of people that say, there is one God and he has revealed himself in Christ the Son. And he has sent the Holy Spirit to form a community here And that is actually the song that we sing each and every week. People are watching and listening. You're like, the high schoolers aren't here. There are many generations here in this gathering. One generation will commend your works to another, the psalmist quotes. We will commend something to the next generation. What will it be? Will it be the story of redemption, wholeheartedly sung in a community of people Or will it be the gods of apathy, consumerism, and all the other forms of idolatry? That's the question. Kathleen got up here today. She's very kind. Here's what she was saying to you. Satan is at war for the hearts of our children, and we need you to get in the fight. I mean, that's that's really what's happening here. There's a war for our attention and, and the goal of Christian community is one generation commending to the other. Not just young, or not just old to young, but young to old. Speaking the truths and the reality of who God is and what God has done and what he will do. Lest we ever forget his redeeming power in our lives. So what are you passing on? What are you passing on to this next generation? I received from my parents uh, a heart of worship. It's just the facts. I mean, I I was not in an environment that sort of would like um, make way for for me taking on the family business, if you will. My dad was a pastor. It's very um, hazardous for for young children to grow up as a PK. Some of you know. If you know, you know. And uh, I grew up in the sticks of Northern California. Pentecostal, saw some weird things, saw some great things. But the thing that I inherited was a heart of worship. And that has changed me. And it's why I'm here. It's why I'm here each week. I've been leading worship here for, since I was 23 years old. That's a long time ago. 
And I can honestly say this, and this is not, I'm not bragging, I, but I, I have never phoned it in. I can't. That's the power, that's not, that's not my own doing, but that's the power of, of the Spirit of God working through one generation to commend the next. So what are you passing on? That's the opportunity. And it's also the warning. But here comes to us the promise. The promise of God in this text, and this is where we'll finish. This is where we'll begin to land the plane. It comes to us in verses 29 to 31. The truth is, is that Israel will give in to to gods and they will have their fill of gods in Babylon. But from there, God says, from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with your whole heart, with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. That word there, covenant, is a constant thread within the text of the entire Bible, Old and New Testament. It's that word covenant. And we moderns don't understand it, so we use words like contract. But that doesn't even get close to what a covenant is. A contract basically says this, If you do this for me, then I will do this for you. But a covenant is entirely different. A covenant says, this is who I will be for you. There's no out clause. There's no sort of like, I'll wait and see what you do. No, a covenant is, this is who I will be for you, no matter what. I've said this at some of your weddings that are in this room. Covenants, the language of God describing his commitment to his people. It's the language of God describing his commitment to the church. It's the language of of God describing marriage between a husband and a wife. It's not a contract, it's a covenant saying this is who I will be for you. A contract is really helpful for your phone plan, but it won't do when it comes to your relationship to the eternal God. Because the truth is, the promises that he brings us to is that when we are faithless, he is faithful. That's his promise to us. We break covenant, he can't. It's not in his nature. It's not who he is, so it's not what he does. He's faithful, even when we're faithless. All the more reason all the more reason to bow down and worship to him and him alone. Because even when we wander, he comes looking for us. And there are moments where he says, okay, I will, I will let you see where that leads to. And even then, if we turn to him, he's there. He is faithful. And so what I wanna do this morning is invite you into a practice that we could consider today as a community. And that practice is the word consecration. It's a word we don't use very often. I would say it's a word we don't use enough. It's only found 175 times in the Bible. 
And here's the idea of what consecration actually is. Consecration is to set yourself apart, to dedicate yourself to God and his purpose. It's really, it's a purifying act because it gets after the idea of laying aside anything that would hinder us from God. If I could just fast forward our story in Deuteronomy just to where it is going in the book of Joshua, the people will have crossed the Jordan and they are standing on the edge. They're about to walk into all that God would give them. And Joshua says to the people this, consecrate yourselves and God will do amazing things amongst you. What does that mean? It means to set apart yourself, to dedicate yourself to God in service, in allegiance, and in loyalty. Each week when we worship, we come to the communion table, which I think of as as an act of consecration. Not where we purify ourselves, but where God purifies us. Not where we earn anything, but where God declares us to be forgiven and set free. No longer slaves, but sons and daughters of the most high God. And when we come to the table, we get the opportunity. Remember earlier when I, when I asked you to just bring to mind one thing, one good thing that has become an ultimate thing. The table is where we can come to Christ and Christ alone and lay that down. The table is where we would exchange our crown for the cross of Christ. Where we would turn our eyes from lesser things and we would turn our eyes back to our redemption, which is found in one place and one place alone, at the feet of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you have been kind to us today. And you've revealed your jealousy for us. And God, we just, as we sit um, here in this moment, we need your help to let go of the many things that we can worship. The many things that um, sort of bring us even back into the captivity that you freed us from. So Lord, have mercy. Pour out your kindness and grace. Some of us in this room, you've allowed us to taste just how destructive our appetites can be. But that is not to leave us there or even so much to punish us as it is to refine us by your love. So Lord, we come today to receive grace. And we ask you to pour it out and help us to receive. In Jesus' name. And everybody said.
Amen.